Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hi there, and thank you for joining us on the Space Nuts podcast. My name's Andrew Dunkley, your host, and with me as always is astronomer Fred Watson. G'day, Fred. G'day, Andrew. How's it going over there in the central west of New South Wales? It's getting warmer. The season is changing. The pollen is flying. My eyes are watering. All is is as good as it can be this time of the year, which is not real good, actually. But, um, you know, they've got drugs for that now, so (laughs) we're all fine. Uh, We we are so desperate for rain. There is the most severe drought uh, that we are suffering at the moment and it's having a massive economic impact on farmers and all the fringe businesses that uh, rely on farming and, of course, um, the towns are suffering. And uh, we're already seeing people sell up and leave, which is um, very, very unfortunate. We thought that was um, the worst it could get uh, during the millennium drought. Uh, but then um, this one, they say, is much worse and much more widespread. Uh, the entire state of New South Wales is now considered um, in drought in some form. But sadly, we're at uh, ground zero when it comes to the effect of this drought. It's the, We're in the worst patch of the state. So um, not good at all, really. Uh, we've just got to struggle on. But uh, that aside, you and I are going to talk about something completely different. And uh, the Hayabusa 2 uh, mission has seen success. We did talk about this a few weeks ago, but uh, things have happened pretty fast. Uh, this is the Japanese mission to try and land uh, on an asteroid. Uh, in fact, I think they were plopping a couple of rovers down on there. So we'll, we'll see how that went. We'll also look at New Horizons. That's a probe that's uh, been into the outer reaches of our solar system and it's about to visit another um, uh, body that um, I'd never heard of until you told me the name of it, Ultima Thula, which is, um, I'm guessing, some kind of rock out there uh, that it's uh, going to do a flyby um, fairly, fairly soon anyway. And variations in light temperature. A question um, from Petra about uh, why in some cases red is hotter than blue and in other cases blue is hotter than red in the spectrum. So we'll get to that. That's a fantastic question and one she's obviously put a lot of thought into. But firstly, Fred, Hayabusa 2, a successful mission? So far, yeah, it's uh, going really well. I mean, um, this is, uh, we have, as you said, spoken about it recently. So this is a bit of an update. As we speak, uh, the spacecraft is in orbit around the asteroid uh, Ryugu, uh, which is formally known as 1999 JU3. <laughs> and it's a carbonaceous asteroid, very common type of asteroid, but of a kind uh, that we think contains some of the, you know, the, the building blocks of the solar system, the most 
uh, if you can put it this way, the most pristine matter in the solar system. So mm. it's lots of stuff. There's probably ice there. Uh, or there might be organic compounds, you know, the carbon-containing compounds that we think um, were the building blocks of life. All of that stuff, there'll be minerals there as well. And so the idea of Hayabusa 2 is to study this asteroid to within an inch of its life. <laughs> and more than that, bring some back to the Earth, which is, um, you know, the, the big plan. Mm -hmm. And of course, it follows up with the, the Hayabusa 1 mission, which was um, more than a decade ago now, which was nearly successful, visited another... I think it was Ikutawa or something like that, the asteroid it, it visited and um, did actually bring a sample back, but it was a long and difficult process. So with the new Hayabusa spacecraft, what we have at the moment is the main spacecraft in orbit around the asteroid uh, and two little rovers on its surface, um, which are known as <laughs> Minerva. Minerva is the is the... Uh, sort of generic name for all these rovers, but there's actually rather a lot of them. Uh, so there are two rovers at the moment, both of which are called Minerva 2-1. Uh, that's the container that um, deployed these two rovers. I think they, they also have technical names of Rover 1A and Rover 1B. Okay. Uh, they were deployed a few days ago. Uh, they're JAXA uh, rovers. They're, they're, they're not so much rovers as so much as hoppers mm. because they, they've got um, rotating masses within them. A bit like, um, you know, that thing that makes your mobile phone buzz, yes. which is a rotating mass. It's the yeah. same sort of thing. So, But these are relatively heavy masses. Well, the whole thing's only a few kilograms, but, uh, well, it's actually a little more than a kilogram, they're, they're each one of these things. But they contain those rotating masses that basically bounce them off the surface. Mm. Um, because the gravitational field of the asteroid is so long, uh, sorry, sorry, so low. Uh, <laughs> I'm losing the power of speech here. I'm so excited about it. Because the gravitational field of the asteroid is so low, um, one hop uh, lasts for about 15 minutes. No <laughs> and way. Really? Gently land back on the surface. 15 and, minutes? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's great stuff. That's amazing. Um, so the Minerva, the Minerva 2 uh, rovers, Rover 1A and Rover 1B, uh, have basically cameras on board. They've got a stereo camera, a wide-angle camera, and, and actually thermometers. And they've got uh, solar cells to provide the power. The great thing is these things are not much bigger than a loaf of bread. They're, if you imagine a, 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 one of these circular loaves of bread that we, we occasionally get to eat, uh, maybe um, 20 centimetres across and six or seven centimetres thick, that's the size of one of you, you these. Think, you're thinking of a cob loaf, I think. A cob, that's the word I'm looking for, yeah. yes. They should have called them cob 1A and cob 1B. They, well, they should have. I, I, I'm really disappointed to see that the Japanese space agency's taken a leaf out of NASA's book and gone with the, the lame name department. But anyway. Well, yes, that's right. <laughs> um, the bottom line is that they're, they're currently working. They're working well. Uh, they're sending images back, and remember, this, the spacecraft is it's about 200, if I remember, it's about 280 million kilometres uh, from Earth. It's very, very distant at the moment, and uh, that seems to be all working well. Um, the, 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 there, there isn't, it's kind of extraordinary that the 
the the stuff that's going on up there when when the lower when the rovers were dropped onto the surface in their container um the the orbital height of the mothership hayabusa 2 over the asteroid was 55 meters <laughs> so that's a pretty close approach 55 yes. meters it tells you that these these you know the control the mission controllers for this really know what they're doing um it's it's kind of nominal positions about 20 kilometers away from the uh, from the asteroid but uh, bringing it down to that uh, that 50, 55 meters is quite astonishing, mm. and each each hop of these little rovers is roughly 15 meters or so, um, and they'll they'll do it until their solar panels fail. Uh, so they've got you know I think these things are probably set to be hopping all over Hayabusa two for quite some time. So um, is it just a general sort of see what we can see kind of mission, or do they have a specific target in mind? They do. They've got lots of targets. So so the the, these little rover 1A and rover 1B are just the precursors. Uh, there, there is another uh, container, which is called Minerva 2-2, and that holds the rover number two. Uh, and that's a bigger, rather bigger rover. Uh, it's got the sorts of stuff that you might expect. It's got thermometers and cameras. Uh, it's got uh, stuff that will allow it to sense the amount of dust that there is coming up from the surface of the, the asteroid. And once again, it's got this hopping mechanism. Apparently, there are there are four hopping mechanisms in the second rover. And then there's another one, uh, which is a, a German aerospace contribution, uh, along with the French Space Agency. And this is called MASCOT, which is the Mobile Asteroid Surface Scout. It's got that's got a much bigger, you know, set of instrumentation. It, it doesn't have solar panels, however. It's just got a, a, a battery. Uh, it's got camera, infrared spectrometer, magnetometer, and radiometer, and all of that sort of thing uh, to tell us more about the surface of of higher um, Hayabusa. Mm. Sorry, of um, Ryu, Ryugu. Uh, the yeah. yeah, the the spacecraft itself, however. Uh, this is the mothership, and you know, rather than the two, the three rovers we've just—sorry, four rovers—we've just been talking about. Um, the mothership will itself, at the end of the mission or late in the mission, and I think that's going to be about the end of next year, will basically land on the on the surface of the uh, asteroid with a sort of a horn, uh, which will touch the surface, and then you fire a bullet into the surface. And what happens is you get a whole lot of stuff which is released from the surface and it's collected by the horn. Uh, and uh, that then comes back to the Earth, uh, landing sometime in 2020. It is really a, an extraordinary, yes. uh, an extraordinary mission. Very, very ambitious. And we keep our fingers crossed that we might have bits of an asteroid coming back to Earth round about December 2020. You've got to hand it to the Japanese when it comes to ingenuity. That uh, this this whole concept, uh, the bouncing rovers and the touch and go landings and the you know the way they're scooping up bits and pieces is just extraordinary and. Uh, yeah, I, look, I, I think dumb things like how did they keep the battery charged for the trip so that it, <laughs> that fourth rover would operate? <laughs> because out in the depths of space, it's cold, and we know cold weather basically drains batteries. So they must have had a trickle charge going all the way there. Yeah, they do. The, 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 the mothership itself, Hayabusa 2, uh, has solar panels and is 
uh, kept fed by sunlight, basically. Mm -hmm. It's great, great stuff. Fantastic. And so as long as there's sunlight, these rovers should continue to hop around. So we should get a lot of data in the not-too-distant future. I I know they've already sent back a photo uh, from Minerva 2.1, uh, yes. Although it's um, it's not the greatest photo, but uh, it is the first photo I believe which they've published on Twitter. So we can get a bit of a glimpse of uh, of what they're up to. But hopefully they'll get some better quality pictures and ultimately some um, bits and pieces of asteroid to bring back to Earth. And and yeah, what we'll learn from that, well, that remains to be seen. But uh, could be exciting. I hope it will be. Mm. All right, we'll uh, probably hear more about that in future episodes of Space Nuts. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. This is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years, and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons, and there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked and a couple of years down the track honestly can't complain their interface is very easy to use their their service is second to none Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do and they were brilliant so you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all it's all about privacy Uh, do you really want big tech companies governments and others knowing Uh, what's going on with your online activity even if you're having nothing to hide it just feels downright creepy Uh, I think you'll agree and governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day and so yeah protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about and how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, Now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, So protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash Space. That's T R Y E X P R E S S V P N dot com slash space for three months free with a one year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now, back to the show. Okay, we checked all four systems and being with a go. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, from one deep space mission to another, this is the mission of New Horizons, which has already done incredible things and has been up there for 12 years or so now, from what I remember. It's um, done a flyby of uh, Pluto and um, uh, one of the others. Was it Charon, I think? Yes. Or, uh, yeah. Yep, and now it's off to Ultima Thula. And yeah, which I, I'd never heard of Ultima Thule. Where have I been? No, you, you and I have spoken about this before, but we've given it its proper name, which oh. is MU69. Ah, right. Now it all... Your old friend, yes. MU69. I like Ultima Thule much better. Yeah. So uh, the, the word means 
something like the most distant place or something of that sort. I mean, Ultima clearly is the ultimate, and Thule is something remote, I believe, from my um, my poor knowledge of classical languages. Anyway, it's on its way there. Mm. Um, and we, we've kind of known about this since 2015 when um, New Horizons did its epic flyby of Pluto and the Pluto um, satellite system, including Charon, as, as you mentioned. Um, that was it was a stupendously successful uh, mission, and everybody's hoping for the same thing when uh, when the spacecraft flies by. I'm going to give it its proper name, MU69, <laughs> in in uh, in the, the very early next year. In fact, it will probably be at its closest almost on um, the, the, the dawning of New Year's Day. It depends on what time zone you're talking about. We should, in Australia, we should hear about it sometime on New Year's Day. Um, the reason why it's in the news is that there's been a bit of a, a you know, an, an announcement about it and some uh, interviews by its uh, chief or its um, mission principal scientist, Alan Stern, <clears throat> who um, you might remember, I think we spoke about this. Um, I met him uh, last year, was it? Yeah, maybe earlier this year. An extraordinary man and a very, very nice character to speak to. Very modest. Uh, Mr. Pluto, really. Yeah. Uh, but he's, um, he, he's, uh, uh, he's, you know, just a, a, an ordinary scientist, keen to find results and keen to tell people about them. Uh, not somebody who's... Uh, put himself in an ivory tower because of his extraordinary position. He's just a great bloke. Um, and I hope uh, that he's, he meets with success again when the spacecraft flies by um, MU69. So the, the, the things that we're learning from the discussion with Alan, uh, Alan Stern uh, is the, the, the plans for this encounter. And apparently it will be effectively a repeat of what happened with Pluto. So, and you might remember, um, Andrew, that there was, what they did was, they had to shut down uh, the spacecraft's communications with the Earth during the encounter, because they had to essentially turn the spacecraft round, swivel it round, so the cameras were pointing towards Pluto, uh, and then uh, sort of pan along all that and gathering data uh, with all the, the you know, the, the, the festoon of, of instruments that, that are on the spacecraft. Uh, and, and then once the encounter was over, turn the spacecraft back so that the high gain antenna is pointing back at the Earth and send all the data back. And it took quite a long time to get the data fully back. And, and it's even more true now uh, with uh, this object, which is rather further away uh, than, than Pluto, uh, about half a billion kilometers further away. In fact, Pluto's about six billion kilometers. This one's about six and a half mm. billion kilometers. Um, it's a, an icy asteroid. We don't even really know how big it is. You can only see it as a point of light um, with uh, you know, with the, the telescopes that have been used to pick it up. Uh, and so you've got to sort of estimate what its, what its surface reflectivity is to guess what its diameter might be. It's probably only really a few metres, maybe a kilometre at the most, but uh, not a large object. Uh, we really don't know what we'll find. It's probably a fairly typical denizen of the uh, of the uh, outer asteroid belt, that belt of objects that we sometimes call the Kuiper belt, uh, named after Gerard P. Kuiper, one of the great astronomers of the 1950s. <clears throat> we know that that's 
uh, got this whole region, there's more than a thousand known, and there are probably many millions altogether, of icy debris left over from the formation of, this, of the solar system, of which Pluto and a few other big ones are the, are the biggest members. Um, I think uh, we will learn a lot. Uh, the um, the uh, by you know the flyby will be at actually about three and a half thousand uh, kilometers, which uh, is closer than New Horizons passage round Pluto. Um, but a much, I, um, but a much smaller target. So it's a smaller target. It's, yeah, it's probably a, a bit more tricky to to get the sort of information they're looking for and get the that, cameras that. on it. That's correct. Yeah, the targeting is going to have to be fairly pr precise, I would imagine. Uh, exactly. It, it, uh, they've got to get this right, and I'm sure they will. They did, certainly did with Pluto. Uh, just to um, uh, uh, perhaps um, explain that a bit further and correct something I just said a few minutes ago, <laughs> uh, Pluto is a bit more than 2,000 kilometres in diameter, uh, whereas uh, Ultima Thule, is, it is more than I said. I said of, of order of kilometre. It's actually about 37 to 40 kilometres, something of that sort. Yeah. So it's a little bit bigger, but it still is Quite uh, small. a small target when you're, when you're three and a half thousand kilometres away from it. Mm. So it's got to work, and I'm sure it will. I, I'm kind of thrilled that uh, New Horizons was launched in 2006. They didn't find this asteroid until, what, four years ago. Yes, that's and right. yet we, an existing mission can be retasked to go and have a look at it. I think that's awesome. That's right. I think what, if you remember, what happened was when uh, the the flyby of Pluto was completed, they identified um, three possible targets out there in the Kuiper Belt. An MU sixty nine, as you said, it was discovered in twenty fourteen, so it was not known uh, when the spacecraft was launched. Um, when when they chose that one. Uh, I think it was because it's the easiest one to get to and perhaps in some ways the most interesting one. So they, they had to do a course correction on the other side of Pluto uh, to to point the spacecraft in the direction of this object. And it's on track. You know, all the uh, evidence is that it is actually um, perfectly aligned. Uh, and gravity lets you do that because it's so well understood, but perfectly aligned with MU69. Mm. Um, the... The things that I think concern Alan Stern at the moment are to do with the fact that the spacecraft is now going to be, um, what, two, two and a half, three years, three years older, two and a half years older than it was uh, when, it, uh, when it flew by uh, Pluto. So that means that the little nuclear power plant that they've got on board is delivering less power because it does actually decay. This is the, the plutonium generator, the RTG, the radioisotope thermoelectric generator. Yeah. Um, the plutonium fuel in that just gradually um, loses its oomph. Uh, it clearly still has enough to power the spacecraft, but it might be, um, you know, it might it, it might be a, a bit of an increased risk factor in, in when they, they take all the risks into account to, to decide what to do. Mm. Of pointing it. But, you know, uh, what they've achieved so far has almost been a flawless mission, and I don't recall too many missions in deep space going so brilliantly. I suppose the Voyager missions are great examples of success stories, but yes. uh, this, this one's going along pretty well along the, you know, the same kind of path. So uh, even if they kind of don't hit the jackpot with um, MU69, um, it's good to have a go. I mean, yeah, how Aussie absolutely. is that? Have a crack. <laughs> <laughs>
It is. Mm. It's um, yeah. It's, uh, it's got a true Aussie spirit on board. Yeah. All right, <laughs> we will watch that one and hopefully have some um, startling information about this uh, little rock out in the edges of our solar system. Um, early next year, Fred, I imagine. Sounds good, yeah. yeah. All right. You're listening to Space Nuts, Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Finally, Fred, a question from the Peanut Gallery. Get it? Space Nuts. <laughs> Mm. Okay, uh, this one from Petra Drud. Uh, Petra, you're not a peanut. Um, thank you for answering my first question. I have another. Uh, William Herschel discovered infrared light by measuring the temperature of a rainbow. He found the temperature increased from blue, uh, the lowest, to red, the highest. However, when we measure the temperature of stars, we say the blue stars are hotter than the red stars. I'm hoping you can explain why these two ways of measuring light temperature are different. So in a rainbow, blue is the coolest, red is the hottest. But in stars, it's the other way around is what she's <laughs> saying. And she's asking why. That's right. And it's a great question. Um, so we, we t tend to refer to the rainbow as a spectrum. Uh, and we know that that spectrum of light ranging from red right through to, to violet uh, at, the, at the other end of the spectrum, it, we know that that spectrum is just a small part of a much bigger um, set of radiation, which we call the electromagnetic spectrum. And if you kind of go beyond blue, you get to ultraviolet light. You go beyond that, you get to X-rays. You go beyond that, you get to gamma rays. And at the other end, if you go beyond red, you get infrared. And if you go beyond that, you get microwaves. And if you go beyond that, you get radio waves. And so they're all forms of light. Yeah, they're all forms of It's the same sort of radiation. That's right. Mm. It's an electromagnetic radiation. It's one of the best understood things in physics, probably. So Herschel's uh, experiment was exactly as Petra says, um, he um, got light from the sun, passed it through a prism and made a, a spectrum of the sun, a rainbow of the sun, and, and used a thermometer to measure the temperature along it and found really not much uh, in the visible part, not much heat there. But when he put his thermometer beyond the red end of the spectrum, where he couldn't see any radiation, he found the thermometer went up in temperature. And that was because the thermometer is being heated by infrared radiation. Ah. So, uh, so the thermometer itself is telling you about the particular radiation you're receiving. Uh, and that is true. Um, uh, infrared is essentially radiant heat. So it's a property of that particular part of the spectrum uh, that the thermometer responds to and it doesn't respond to other parts of the spectrum if however and he, he clearly didn't do this because he didn't know about them if uh, if uh, herschel had instead of been using a thermometer had used a photoelectric device like a you know photoelectric cell like you have uh, to detect the amount of light for a camera he would have found the blue light would have given him the biggest reading uh, and it's because blue light has more energy in it than red light or infrared light. Uh, so it re a detector that's sensitive to light rather than heat will respond much more to blue light than red light. So what I'm saying here is that the, the, the fact that the thermometer showed up those differences in temperature, which peaked in the, in the infrared beyond the red end of the spectrum, 
that's more a property of the thermometer itself. It's a device that measures temperature, not a device that measures energy. We do have devices that measure the whole energy of something, and they're called bolometers. It's a very odd name, but a bolometer is not sent, it, it, it's kind of independent of what region of the spectrum you're looking in. It will tell you the whole picture. They're very unusual and rather interesting technical devices. So um, what, I, what? just to recap on that, the, fact, the bottom line is that as you go bluer in the spectrum, you actually are looking at higher energies. And when you get to, infra, uh, to ultraviolet, of course, that's the energy that burns our skin in, in sunburn. And then beyond that to X-rays and gamma rays, they have very high energy radiation. Uh, so now turning to stars, uh, the blue stars are hotter than red stars because they've got more energy. Basically, it means that the energy um, that they are emitting peaks in the bluer region of the spectrum rather than the red end of the spectrum because their intrinsic temperature is very high. And that's to do with the overall energy of the star. So red stars are the cooler ones, uh, unlike the thermometer experiment that Herschel did. I suppose uh, really, you, can, you can also uh, look at it from a, a perspective of uh, Herschel was looking at a spectrum of a single star, whereas looking at different stars, you've got different combinations of uh, fuels, you've got different um, sizes and makeups, and um, that you, you, it's not the same situation. Really? That, that's that's true, but um, the, the most important property of a star is its temperature, and that alone uh, determines what its color is. Uh, so, um, and, and that's sort of been known since the latter years of the 19th century. Uh, the, 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 the color of the star is really directly related to temperature, and it, it comes about and you can sort of do a thought experiment here. It, it, the, the star itself is behaving for these purposes, like what we call a black body. And a black body is a, is a technical term for <clears throat> something that has no reflectivity. So if you imagine a lump of dirty iron or something like that, you can regard that as a black body. <clears throat> when, it, excuse me, when it's at normal room temperature, it is actually emitting infrared, but we can't see that. But if you start heating it up, First of all, it goes red at temperatures in the order of, you know, four or five hundred degrees. Uh, then it starts getting white. We call it white hot. And if you heated it more, it would be going blue. And that's so that's really the, relating to the way the stars are. They're like a lump of iron. The cooler ones are red and the hotter ones are blue. I suppose uh, you can also equate it to uh, a gas flame. The blue part of the flame is hotter than the red part of the flame. <laughs> You can, but that's another different process. Is it really? Well. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but it's it's a nice one. It is certainly true that the blue part is hotter. Mm. But the, the, the point is that the gas flame is not a black body. It's It's got other things in it as well, uh, whereas a star effectively is uh, just a, a black body, a bit okay. like a lump of iron. So... Hopefully, Petra, that sorts out your um, your, your question. Uh, yeah, I don't um, think that's not our best. I, I don't think that was our best moment, Andrew. I think that was not a good explanation, but that's yeah. the way it is. <laughs> yeah. So there you have it, um, and and hopefully that uh, that covers the. Uh, um, the, the answer for you, Petra. Fingers crossed. Uh, but thank you for the question. We do appreciate it. And uh, we've had plenty lately. Um, it, it, uh, it, it's just uh, 
consuming every day. In fact, that um, I'm seeing questions popping up mainly through our Facebook page, but uh, they're all well thought out and they they keep us uh, they keep us going, don't they, Fred? They're they're very bright. Um, they're great. It's great questions. Yeah, and um, we're we're delighted to have them. It's um, fitting them all in. I think before too long, we'll have to have another whole episode devoted to questions. Maybe so. Yes, yeah. um, we might have to do that every uh, every so often so that we can catch up a bit because we've fallen behind again already uh, <laughs> some of them we do answer online rather than on the podcast um, uh, but yeah there's a few there that really tease our brains especially Fred's and uh, he likes to have a bit of a, uh, a go at them so um, thank you Petra and uh, thank you everybody for uh, contributing to Space Nuts we do appreciate it greatly and thank you Fred nice to catch up with you yet again Sounds good, Andrew. I um, also enjoyed that, and I hope we can do it again soon. I hope so, yeah, indeed. <laughs> Maybe next week. Maybe. Uh, Fred good Watson, night. astronomer, joins us every week on Space Nuts. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.